Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. All right, good morning. Have you, uh, have you forgotten what it's like to be new? Uh, it, it usually marks us, often not in a good way. You remember being new at school? My kids, um, they, they went to a Achiever Christian school here on campus, and then we switched them to a public middle school where they went to a school where they didn't know anybody. And they had lunch sometimes by themselves. That'll mark your soul, right? Do you remember what it's like to be new to your neighborhood, new to a workplace, new to a school? Some of you are having that experience right now. You came to church, and you're new. You don't know anybody. And sometimes you're like, oh, it's okay. I feel so comfortable with myself. And I I just go into a new place. I don't even have to know anybody. I can sit by myself. And I'm like, I'm just confident in myself. I'm like, you're good. That's fantastic. But I remember, this is my freshman year in in high school. Uh, My family, I grew up in a Christian family. Going to church was like, it wasn't an option. It was the thing that we understood was a value in our family. That when you belong to the family of God, you always belong to a local church. Well, we lived in this town called Laverne, okay? Little 30,000 people in our town, but we had gone to another church like 15 miles away. There was a blow up at that church. I know, shocker, right? Something went wrong at that church. So we decided to go to another church in Glendora. Well, that was like eight miles away, right? It wasn't even with the people in my town. And so my parents found this church that they liked. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to try out the student ministry group. So I went to the student group. I attended off and on. For 12 months. For a year. Now, granted, I was this freshman guy who was like just ruthlessly insecure. So I, I walked in and I hung in the back. I didn't purposely walk in and be like, hey, I'm new. What's up? Just that is not who I am. But I went for a year. At least like twice a month, right? You know how many friends I made the first year? Zero. None. Literally nobody talked to me. There were, this was a group of 40 to 50 students. It was just large enough that I could come in and be a mystery. Just be hidden amongst them. And it did mark my soul in such a way that said, church should never, ever be like that. Um, it, it's interesting because it, in churches, this is the one thing that actually Jesus said, it'll define your church. He's like, they'll know that you're actually part of me. They'll know that you're a God follower by the way that this thing happens. And maybe this will sound familiar familiar to you. In John 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. You can't love somebody if you don't know who they are. And then he says this, as I have loved you, so the same way I showed you love, I want you to love one another. And then get this, he says, by this one thing, by loving each other, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The defining act of the church, the thing that marks them as followers of Jesus. This isn't the only thing, but for Jesus, this was the one thing that he said, listen, they'll know that you're a real church by the way you love each other. Um, So church, here's what's interesting about church. It should be the easiest place to find belonging, right? 
It should be the place where you meet people and their arms are wide open. But here's what's so interesting about the Christian life. It's actually marked by a couple different things. There's certain non-negotiable beliefs about God. There's also these certain non-negotiable beliefs about who Jesus is. Don't miss this. There's some certain non-negotiable beliefs about what it looks like when you're a Christian and you're following the ways of Jesus. It's, it's a behavior. It's how we act. And let's say someone comes into that community and they don't necessarily yet have those beliefs about God or those beliefs about Jesus or they behave in such a way that isn't in line with what the Gospels describe as following Jesus. What happens in that moment is they can become ruthlessly insecure, like, am I enough? Do I know enough? Do I live the right ways enough? But it's not always just their insecurities. There might be a group of people there that go, oh, look, they don't know this. Oh, look, they don't behave that way. And it can come across as judgment. It could actually be total judgment, judgment in a bad way, or judgment in just an accurate way. Yeah, they don't know that yet. But the thing that overcomes that is love, is how we love one another. So let me give you some context. That's where we're headed today. It's about this powerful experience of belonging and love. That's where we're headed. But let me give you context. We've been in this process of reimagining this church. COVID season, right? A lot of things got shut down. You don't actually have to bring back everything that we were doing. We haven't. And so we've been asking this. Our staff has been asking this question for 18 months. Who are we as a church? Not like literally, who, who are we? Who's here? And what do we want to be about? And so we've done this. What does it look like to reimagine church from the ground up? So we've evaluated our mission, our vision, and our values. And in this series that we're calling Church Reimagined, um, we're giving you what we believe is the mission of our church and also our top five values. You know this, right? Church on the Hill mission is displaying the irresistibility of Jesus so that lives are transformed. When people meet Jesus, they're different. Something's going to change in them. They're, they're going to meet the Christ who died for their sins, loved them in such a way, came back to life. That will change a person. Um, which also changes this, where they're going to spend eternity. They're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. And because of that, here's our number one value. You remember this from a couple weeks ago? It's crowded heaven. Yeah. It's about prioritizing those who are beyond our walls, that this church doesn't exist for just us in this room. It exists for us, but not just for us. So we want to prioritize people who are off the hill, who don't yet know Christ. We're going to invest time, money, energy to reach out to them. Our second value, we talked about it last week, was tattered Bibles. We just say it this way. We've been wearing out Bibles since 1850. (laughs) It's a long time. It's because this church is 172 years old. It's a long time for God's blessing to be on this church. But we believe this about the Bible. We believe that the Bible's God's word, not just the mere words of people. We also believe that God still speaks to us from his word. We also believe that the Bible's the number one tool that God gives us that our lives might change. That's what we believe. So that brings us to our third value today. And here's how we're going to say it. Rooted family. It's about being fully known and fully loved. It's actually a really powerful thing because you know when you don't have it. And we often take it for granted when we do have it. You see, when I was that freshman in high school, all up until that moment, I had a church that I belonged to, and I was like maybe one of the in-kids in the crowd in that church. 
And I can tell you, I probably didn't reach out because I was a middle schooler during all those years. And middle schoolers, maybe there's none in the room right now. They have a group that they're meeting. They're not always the most sensitive people, right? But it became a powerful experience that marked my soul when I was the person who no longer had this rooted family, this sense of belonging in church. So here's what we're going to do. We've been reading through the book of 1 Thessalonians and taking all of our study from there. So open up 1 Thessalonians. I hope that you're there. Hope you have your notes open. We'll fill in some of these blanks. Go along. Rooted family, what is it? Let's start with this. What's a family? It's a group that you're born into and you didn't get to pick them. But the expectation is that there's deep love involved in it. Listen, everybody has a biological family that they did not pick. You're born into it, right? But as you grew up in that family, you did have a choice about how deeply connected you were in that family. And I think the church is the same way. I, I know, I get it, I get it. You can actually pick the church that you go to, right? But do you always pick the people that join that church? No, you don't. And by the way, you're like, oh, so do you have to be born into a church? Yes, you do. The, the scriptures call it, Jesus called it being born again. Spiritually, being born again in the book of John. Like you were dead spiritually, God woke you up and you were born again, is what Jesus called it. When God awakens your soul and makes you spiritually born again, you're not just born into God's family. You actually should be born into a local church. You know, that's why we do baptisms publicly. Baptism in the New Testament was always this moment where you're like, it's the symbol of going underwater and coming up, being dead to your old life and being born to a new life. But do you know this, that baptism historically has always been the entrance into the church family? That's what it was designed for. So that people could see you and you're making a public statement. I'm a follower of Jesus and I want you to know it. And, and this, is, this is my belief. And they would welcome you into the family. That's what church is too. You don't get to pick the people that join this church. They just, all of a sudden, I mean, look around you right now. Did you pick these people? No, you didn't. But yet this is supposed to be God's family here on the hill. So what does it mean to be rooted? I think it's a deep connection of intertwined lives in which people are fully known and fully loved. Like I said earlier, I think Jesus started this when he said this. They're going to know that you're my people. You're going to know that you're a church by the way that you love each other. You know, we do church membership. You know that? But because we do that, it, sometimes it sounds like it's not a family. It's almost like a Costco membership card, right? You can't get in without the card, right? You're a member, but you pay for that membership. You can walk in, show them your card, try to get all the benefits out of it for you, and no one really knows your name. You don't belong to Costco, right? No one welcomes you. Have you ever walked in the door, Costco? You showed them your card, and they're like, hey, Scott, come here. You're like, no, this is weird. I use this for a service. I tolerate the crowds in Costco because, you know, I, I need a 185 pack of something, right? Even though the church actually has membership, it's designed to be this rooted family. But rooted family requires two things. So today's actually going to be simple. You just have to remember two things. A rooted family requires this, generous love. So the last couple of weeks, I invited you to do this. As you read through 1 Thessalonians, I said this, just read one chapter a week, but don't read it once. Read it seven times. 
Monday morning, read chapter one. Tuesday morning, read chapter one. That was week one, right? Just read one chapter and every single day, read the whole chapter and something different is going to pop out to you. So we're on week four, right? So this week you're going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter four all week long. If you've been doing that, you're going to recognize this really easily. Paul oozes love and affection over this church that he's writing a letter to. I mean, in every single chapter, you could just try this. Try and read every chapter. Find all the places where Paul expresses his affection and love for the church. Let's start out. I'll just read chapter 2. Chapter 2 might be the most densely um, populated with these words of affection. Here's what he says. Chapter 2, we'll start in verse 7. He says this. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. That word young children, it might seem weird. Like, so Paul was this religious authority that came into town and told the story of Jesus. And he's like, listen, we were like young children. Now, Don't miss this. We'll get a little technical here, a little academic. The word in Greek that means young children. There's a, the Greek letter, whether it's present or or off of it, whether it's there or not, there's a new there, a, a letter. And if it's not there, it could mean either young children or it can mean gentle. And so scholars debate whether it actually meant gentle or young children. But either way, doesn't, isn't the sense kind of the same? He's saying this, we didn't come in as the authorities and tell you, listen, you better do this or you're going to hell. <laughs> he came in and he's like, man, we we're like little kids. How big a threat is a little kid to you? They're, they're not. He comes and he says, we were just like little kids to you. Now, there is this sense when, when Paul writes, instead we were like this, you got to know what came before that. And he says this, we were not looking for praise from people. Not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. So let me give you a little bit of context here. Uh, Paul, we learned about this last week from the book of Acts chapter 17, kind of the context of the whole story. Paul comes in this town. He tells people about Jesus. When he tells people about Jesus, he's only there maybe at, at the shortest time, three weeks, maybe a couple of months. He was only there for a little while until these people started coming against Paul. Like, no, 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 he's lying. It says that there were some Jews in town who were jealous because he's taking these Jewish people and kind of stealing them away to tell them who this Jesus is. They start worshiping Jesus and they get jealous. They start this riot in town and Paul and Silas, they have to sneak out of town at night because their lives are being threatened. So these enemies of Paul, they start attacking him verbally now and they start trying to wreck his reputation. I mean, you get this. They start posting on their social media sites how bad Paul is. He's like, listen, that guy, he's lying to you. He's manipulating you. He's trying to control you. And so they start slandering him. So Paul's defending himself. And he's, he says this, we're not looking to make people happy. We're not people pleasers. We're not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else, as though the apostle of Christ could have asserted, as though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted ourselves. We could have taken that approach. We know this. We know who we are. We're going to come in and with authority tell you what the truth is. He's like, we didn't do that. We came in like a little kid. 
We were gentle with you. And then I think this phrase that he uses is probably the most dynamic phrase that describes what the church should be. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Can you even mentally try to go back 2,000 years and envision what Paul meant by that? We worked together. It wasn't a Sunday thing that we kind of gathered together and we didn't see each other once a week. Now we shared meals together. We talked as we went to the market together. We were inside of each other's homes. I mean, this was a major city. But at the same time, that church started out really small. They knew each other intimately. But it's interesting because Paul's not done yet. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Again, he keeps going on with these oozing words of affection. Chapter 2, verse 11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. This is so great. Because he not only talks about how he dealt with the church, but dads, listen to this. Want to be a rock star dad? Want to be a dad that loves your kids the way that God loves? Listen to this. Encouraging comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. I love this. Dads, encouraging, not critical. Encouraging literally means to fill someone with courage. It's positive. It's optimistic. It's filled with words of hope. It is never filled with words of you'll never measure up unless you. Some of you might have grown up that way. I do think it's interesting, though, the next word, not just encouraging. Listen to this. It says comforting. And he's already said, listen, listen, we loved you like a mom loved her little babies. And wouldn't you expect the word comforting to show up? You know, like a mom who comforted you. But it's not. It's interesting. It says like a dad, we comforted you. Because when someone is vulnerable, hurting or struggling, or they feel weak or they feel abused, They need, and ladies, don't take this the wrong way. Don't don't judge me on what I'm not saying. They need the strong figure in their life to come around them and hold them and protect them and go, no, it's going to be all right. That's what a dad is. A dad is a safety net for kids. Now, moms, listen, look at me, look at me. I'm not saying you're not strong. There's some strong women in this room. That's why I'm making sure I'm making a really clear point, all right? Amen. (laughs) That's what it took to get an amen. But dads, can I use the word protector? Comforter? The person who isn't afraid to deal with feelings and hurts. And then he says this, urging them to live lives worthy of God. So we encourage them. We fill them with hope. We speak positivity. And then when they're hurting, we comfort. But get this. We also urge them in the ways of God. This is so, so critical. We live in a culture today where we kind of tell kids, hey, listen, you can do whatever you want to do. And we kind of mean that career-wise, right? Academically, you can do whatever you want to do, which is not true. Some of your kids have no aptitude for math. They don't. You know it. 
Some of your kids have no aptitude for certain things. Some of them can't sing. That means they're never going to be a rock star. They're never going to be on American Idol. But here's where this goes weird. We tell our kids like, hey, if you have a thought and you want to be that, you can pick and choose whoever or whatever you want to be. You know what I'm talking about right now? And it's not true. See, God has established life with boundaries and certain ways that life actually occurs. We don't get to pick and choose who we are, the families that we're a part of, or what it is we're good or bad at, or our identities. He's given us those. And dads urge them to live lives that are worthy of God. Listen, a dad says this, there is a God who loved you. There's a God who loves you today, so much so that he gave his son, Jesus, for you. And I want to urge you to follow him and know him. I'm going to do whatever I can to not drag you into a relationship with Jesus because we don't control our kids, right? We just have influence over them. But I'm going to do everything I can to show you how much God loves you. But I'm going to show you the boundaries of what it looks like to walk with God. I'm going to show you the boundaries that the only way to follow him is actually to know who Jesus is and receive the gift of forgiveness that he offers. You see what I'm saying right now? Dads, we're encouraging. Dads, we're comforting. Dads, we have to urge our kids in a direction. Paul's like, that's how I parented this church. Now, I know we just kind of went into weird territory of like, is this a parent talk right now? It's not, so let me divert back. Again, Paul's words of affection. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. He says this, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Verse 20 says, Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Can you say that about anybody? I mean, like the thing that gives me glory, the thing that gives me joy is you. I mean, some parents, you might say that about your kids. We say it at weird times, though, like, oh, when you're on the soccer field, kid, like, I get so much joy out of that. Like, whatever. Your kid ain't going to play professional soccer. But it's interesting because these aren't Paul's kids. They're the church. Can you imagine a guy looking at you, Ron? I know Ron. I've known Ron for years. To go, Ron, you're my joy. You're the thing that makes me smile and laugh. You're the thing that, man, when we, we know each other so well that when you're winning, I feel like I'm winning. And when you're hurting, I feel like I'm hurting. Do you, do you see the affection that Paul has for this church? To be a rooted family requires this. It's a generous love. And Paul expressed it deeply for this church. It wasn't just something that he felt. It was something that he expressed. So here's what I want you to do. Put yourself in Paul's shoes for just a moment. You enter a town, you're actually there for probably less than a month, and in that time, you're going to share the truth of Jesus with people, you're going to share your life with them. What is Paul risking? Rejection. Could you imagine going into town, you and Silas, you and your buddy, and you're like, man, we're going to take this town for Jesus. Let's start talking to people. (laughs) And you start initiating conversation with people, and they're like, you're crazy. The, re- the power of rejection in this is real. And it brings us to this second feature of what a rooted family requires. And here it is. It's vulnerability. It requires great ro- vulnerability to put yourself out there, to share Jesus, share the, your life with people, and risk being rejected. 
And this is particularly difficult in our culture today. I'll make a statement about our culture. Um, it really, and you'll know this. It takes one foul comment. It takes one insensitive moment that will offend someone. And then the rooted family comes crashing down. I think this is actually kind of weird in our culture today. You might not even agree with it. But I think it's trendy to be offended. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? Like, oh, that, that person, they offend me. That group, they offend me. Or that thing said online, that offended me. And now, listen, listen. There are things in life we should be offended over. When there's injustice, we should be offended by that. We shouldn't tolerate that. We shouldn't be silent about that. But I think our culture has come to such a point where like, if I'm not offended by something, I'm really not living. I really must not have any values if I'm just not offended by something. And then when we're offended, whether we know that person or not, or we know that group or not, we have to come out with such powerful statements against them so that we can cancel any good they ever did. But here's what's hard about the church, and it doesn't work in the church that way, because listen, some of you are some great people. No, probably all of you great people. I mean, all the ones I know here, you're great people. I just might not know everybody. But have you ever said something that was dumb and offensive? Have you ever said or done something that was insensitive? And our culture would say this, I'm about to negate everything you ever said or did. We're going to kick you to the curb. We're going to isolate you. We're going to cancel you. And we start defining people by the dumb thing they said and did instead of being a rooted family that has generous love and vulnerability enough to admit they made mistakes and receive people when they make mistakes. Um, Here's what's interesting. Paul knew this was going to happen. Now, remember, Paul was only there for like a month. We call that the honeymoon phase, right? How hard is it to love people for a month? It's easy. Even if you don't, you can almost fake it for a month, right? But Paul's writing these massive words of affection. But then he says this. Look look at chapter 3, verse 12. He says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. They already have a rooted family. They had a great one-month experience, and then he says this, I want you to keep growing in your love for one another. It's going to be necessity if, it's going to, if you're actually going to stay a rooted family or grow a rooted family. Why? Because people are messed up. People are going to say and do things that will hurt each other. They're going to offend each other. We need to be kind, and we need the kind of vulnerability with one another to help an offender without shaming them. Are you with me? I mentioned every chapter contains words of affection, but look at chapter five now. So chapter two is just really sweet and oozing affection. Chapter three, he's like, listen, you need more and more of this love. And then you get to chapter five, and this is what he says. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. He doesn't say, 
Every week you get together, just hug each other. Just love each other. He's like, listen, bad stuff's going to happen. He knows this. It happens in every church. It happens in this church. But when that happens, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I'm urging you to warn those who are lazy, idle, and disruptive. Those who are messing up relationships, I want you to warn them. Hey, hey, that's not how we roll here. This church, this church family, we're a rooted family. We don't do things like that. But I'm going to tell you in such a way that says, no, no, no. I believe that you didn't mean to do that. Or maybe you did, but we're going to forgive and we're going to make this right. Just because you said or did something that was dumb, we're not going to define you by that moment. Come back in. I grew up in a family like that. That never defined me by my biggest failures. This is the kind of church we got to be. But I'll tell you, it's really, really hard because it requires a certain amount of vulnerability. Could you imagine being the one? You're like, hey, hey, James, got you here, brother. Uh, there's this guy in your community group, and man, he, I, I hear he's being super disruptive. Could you go warn him for me? <laughs> no. Pastor, you should do that. No, 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 no. You guys, man, you guys know each other way better. Can you imagine the vulnerability it takes to try and step into someone's world and say, hey, I know you're being disruptive, but I love you enough to tell you the truth. And then encourage the disheartened, which means that maybe somebody is depressed or they're struggling or they're so frustrated right now, and you need to walk alongside them in such a way that you're going to step into their depression. You're not going to avoid them. You're not going to avoid them because they're in a dark place. I want you to help the weak. Be patient with everyone. You know, we don't have to be patient with delightful people. We don't have to be patient with pleasant people, do we? They require zero patience. You only have to be patient with people, I don't know, that are irritating, right? People that bug you. People that aren't pleasant. Do you see where Paul went? He's like, chapter one, chapter two, I have all this affection and love for you. Now, let it grow more and more. By the way, here's what that's going to mean in the end. You're going to have some hard circumstances, so make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. That's generous love and vulnerability. Always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. To be a rooted family, it's going to require love and vulnerability. So what do we do with this? Here's, uh, let's get real practical right now. Uh, what can we do to become a rooted family? Uh, take a look. There's a couple boxes. There's a chart on your, uh, your notes right here. It'll show up here. Uh, let's describe this real quick. Fully known and fully loved. That's how we describe it, right? In the upper right-hand corner, if you are fully loved, you're walking in here, you're, maybe you're in the church and you're like, people love me. Like people said hi to you. They called you by name. But here's what might be interesting. You're actually not known to them. You know what we call that? We call it superficial. They don't actually know what you hurt over. They don't know your weaknesses. They don't even know where you work. And the reality is it's superficial. Here's the weird deal. Um, you know what the false self is? It's that thing that we project to people, particularly people who are strangers or people who we want to get to know. It might be even be who we want to be, but it's not actually who we are because we only show our strengths and we only show our good side. We never show the things that are negative about us. And it's... Truth be told, it's our false self. And sometimes we live in our false self so much so that we don't even know the difference between our real self and our false self. That's part of adulthood. You know this? That it's to differentiate actually who you really are as a person. 
so that when you come in, you can be your authentic true self. But listen, when we come to church, it doesn't mean you walk in the doors and spill your guts about what's going on in your life. We call that community groups. But is it superficial? Um, Lower left-hand side. What if you do take the vulnerability steps to become fully known by people? But then you feel like they don't love you. Here's the truth. That's our greatest fear. You see, if your false self gets rejected, you're like, at least they didn't know the real me. But when your real self gets rejected or pushed to the curb, that's our greatest fear. I think that actually might be one of the issues in dating and marriage, that when someone finally gets to know us and they call us out, we can feel rejected. And we just don't know if we have the strength to remain vulnerable with them so that they can love us really knowing who we are. Um, There is a, a third option, and it's the upper left, where you're not actually known and you're not actually loved. We call it isolation. We know this from COVID that uh, the isolation is not good for anybody. You were designed for community. You were designed for relationships. But it's an option. It's definitely an option at church. If no one here knows your name this morning, if it's your first Sunday, you're totally off the hook. <laughs> but if you've been coming here for years and no one knows, knows your story, no one knows where you live, what's going on in your life, They wouldn't know how to pray for you or encourage you. They can't love you if they don't know you. So, it's isolation. And we know people don't thrive there. So here's the place where I think our church should be. And we're always at different places with everyone in the room. It's to be fully loved and fully known. When you're fully loved and fully known, you're going to be loved like the way that God loves you. God, God knows us, right? He knows your false self, but he knows your real self. While they were, you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate act of love, even though he knows who we really are. That's unbelievable. A rooted family is when we fully know each other. Now, don't make this mistake. Everyone in the room has to fully know me. No. But there has to be a community of people who really know you. And really love you anyways. So let me point out the obvious here. What do you have control over and what do you not have control over? Here's what you have control over. Your vulnerability to be known. Second, your ability to give and receive love. That's all you control. I was in my men's group this last week and someone shared something pretty vulnerable. Guys group, tears are shed in that moment. The end of the group One of these guys says, you know, I've I've gone to some guys' groups for four years, and I don't feel like I've known them like I know some of you guys right now, because the vulnerability level started going through the roof. And he said it in such a way that wasn't threatening. He said it in such a way that he's like, I love this. We've only been together for like three or four weeks now, and that's where we're at. Because I, I think that kind of love Every single one of us, we long for it. So what's not in your control? Their vulnerability. You don't control people's vulnerability. You can ask a good question. You don't control the answer. 
their willingness to love you when you're vulnerable. Here's what's weird. When we try to control their vulnerability or their willingness to love us, that's when we actually slip into our false self and we can manipulate. We try to at least manipulate them to receive our love. We try to make them love us. Well, they're called people pleasers. We could try to manipulate people to get them to be vulnerable. Like, don't you feel the same way? And all of a sudden we're trying to drag vulnerability out of them. We can then feel like, oh, they're never going to reciprocate. Then we project our false self on them so that we never show weakness or vulnerability again. My uh, college experience, you know, you get to know some new people. I had a friend there. As he drove to college his freshman year, he was riding next to a friend of his. They'd known each other a decade. And on the way, he said this. He said, I want you to call me Bill. Now, I changed his name because I'm not going to use his real name. He goes, I want you to call me Bill. He's like, no, 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 your name's William. I know. But you also know that I'm named after my dad. Don't call me William anymore. Because I don't want to be anything like my dad. And from that moment on, he was, he was Bill. I tell you that because um, the families we grow up in, are a powerful experience. The expectation is that there is going to be deep, deep love in that family, right? We, we all crave it. We all need it. It is hardwired into our souls to crave that. And when we don't get it, it creates a powerful reaction. Don't call me by my dad's name anymore. I never want to be like him. Fast forward 30 years. I just found this out. That same guy got married and I just found out that they chose, he and his wife chose not to have any kids. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Because not everybody has to become a parent. You might know things about yourself. And you're like, no, you know what? I'm probably better off being an aunt or an uncle. <laughs> not, not a dad or a mom. So nothing wrong with that. But when I, what I heard was he was so afraid he'd be a dad like his dad was, that he chose not to have a family. Why do I tell you that? I want you to recognize this. Your biological family has a powerful experience, a powerful, profound effect on you. Your church family will have a powerful effect on you. I can mentally transport myself back to this place as an insecure freshman guy walking into a church and looking at a group of 40 students who don't know me and don't love me and get mad. Oh, yeah, you're the church, huh? Y'all don't even know my name. And it can cause me to go, yeah, I'm done with that. Why would I ever go back to a church again? And now listen, some of you actually spent decades away from a church because of a bad experience at a church, and you've been vulnerable enough to walk back through the doors to say, I'm willing to try it again. I'm so glad you're here. Rooted family is what we crave. And yet we jack it up sometimes because we're human. If you're craving it, I pray that God would give you a vulnerability to open up to people. If you have it, I pray that God would put such a deep, generous love in you that you would just welcome people with open arms.
It requires love. It requires vulnerability for us to be a rooted family that is fully known and fully loved. Um, Can I just give you a couple examples about how you might live it out this week, and then we'll be done. Let me have the band come out as well right now, and that really means we're wrapping up. Sometimes a pastor says, let me wrap up, and you just know you got another 12 minutes, right? But when the band comes out, you know we're we're stepping into this quickly. Um, Here, this week, would you do this? Would you check up on somebody uh, whom you've lost contact with? Call them, email them. Go see them face to face even better because there might not have been a rift there that broke your relationship. It was just drift. I mean, there's just a season that you haven't seen them. You're like, I don't even know what happened to them. Like get in contact with them. In your community group this week, would you share something that is deeply meaningful to you that no one in the group knows about? It might not even be like your brokenness. It could just be something that you deeply love. Third thing, this week, would you tell someone, express how much someone means to you? And how about not someone that's in your family? I mean, that, that might be the thing that God puts on your heart. That's great. But is there a friendship, someone in your community group, someone in this church that has had an impact on your life? And they might not even know, but just express words of affection to them. Would you ask someone if you could get to know them better? How about that? Have you ever done this? Hey, you know what? You might say, hey, let's grab breakfast sometime. That's kind of like the manly way of saying, I want to get to know you better. Guys, would you just tell them, I would love to take you out to breakfast because I just want to know you more. There's something about you that I kind of admire. And so can we grab coffee or something? Um, When someone shares things with you, would you show genuine interest in their story? As a pastor, it's sometimes hard in the lobby when people come up, they start sharing with you. And I've had to train myself to look them in the eyes and focus because you know it happens sometimes, right? They're here and you're like, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, 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 uh-huh. And it's not that I don't care about them. It's just that there's some other people that I know, oh, I need to talk to them. I need to talk to them. And would you just show interest in someone's story by saying, hey, tell me more about that. Here's the last thing. And this might be actually the hardest thing, but the most meaningful. If there is a hurt or a bad experience that you need to let go of, or stop defining another person by, would you acknowledge it and move on? God, those people at that church hurt me. But you know what? They probably didn't even know they did that. I'm not going to define that church by that. I'm not going to define all the church by that. I'm going to step back in and get involved. That one person who said or did that thing, they might not even know that they offended me that way. I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to hold it against them. I might actually even say or do something kind to them. Be aware if someone says or does something kind to you this week. You might have been that person. God loves you. And he wants to take your heart that's been wounded and he wants to open your heart up to people. He first wants to open your heart up to him. If you're not a follower of Christ, no matter who's hurt you or what they've said, like, listen, he loved you so much, he sent his son to die on a cross for your sins. That today, if you need to accept him, yeah, I believe God loves me. I believe Jesus is God's son. And I'm ready to receive that, then do that as we pray. Others of you, 
If you know you're either not in this rooted family, or maybe you are and you know that you're not, you're not open to other people, let's stop playing church. Let's stop presenting our false self to people. And let's be the kind of rooted family that Jesus said, they will know you by the way you love each other. And I hope our city, when they look at our church, they go, I know that church because they, because they love people. That's God's invitation. It's one of our highest values at the church. It's one of the hardest to live up to. But by the power of God, may he give us the courage to be loving and vulnerable enough so that he might keep changing people's lives. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord, there's a lot of emotion behind belonging. And some of that emotion can be deeply positive and some of it can be uh, from deep wounds, God. Whatever you want to speak to people today, I pray that you would do that in a powerful way. If we need to forgive, let us forgive. If we need to say yes to you and become a Christian today, I know there's people that are probably making that step right now. Don't let that be anonymous. Share that with someone. God, may we be the kind of rooted family that you created us to be. Use us to change lives all over this city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said.